Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. When you think of extraterrestrial life, what do you see? Is it little green men asking to be taken to your leader? Perhaps it's a small brown creature with big eyes, riding on the back of a child's bike. The search for extraterrestrial intelligence, often called just SETI, has always had something of an image problem. For decades, it's been relegated to the fringes of astronomy, something for those more interested in sci-fi than science. Hello and welcome to Babbage on Economist Radio, our weekly podcast about science and technology. I'm Alok Jha, science correspondent for The Economist. By the turn of the 21st century, people were starting to lose interest in SETI, and with decades of null results, money for the endeavour was dwindling. But things are now changing. A renaissance in astronomy and astrophysics in the past two decades has transformed how we see the universe around us. Astronomers have discovered thousands of exoplanets, that's planets outside our solar system. They could be habitable for life like our own. The question of whether or not intelligent aliens exist is one of the things that first switched me onto astronomy decades ago. Over the course of this program, we'll try to grapple with that question and hear from some of the pioneers and leaders in the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. think you can't overestimate the influence of knowing that the galaxy is full of planets, right? More planets than stars. My name is Jill Tarter. I co-founded a nonprofit called the SETI Institute back in 1984. When we started, we didn't know about any planets beyond our solar system. And there was even a theory of planet formation, which would have predicted that planets were very difficult to form and they would be very rare. Well, it turns out the theory was wrong. That's good for us because there's lots of habitable real estate out there. Once you begin thinking and knowing that something exists, which you haven't been able to study before, and then you begin to think about the potential for harboring life, you just can't avoid the next question. If there's life, is any of it smart? Is any of it technological? Whereas when you started with that final question back when we were doing SETI for the first time, it sounded really bizarre. Jill Tata isn't just any scientist. SETI as a discipline wouldn't be what it is today without her. She co-founded the SETI Institute, a non-profit in California that has led the way in this research for decades. And if you've seen the film Contact, which is all about SETI, she's the inspiration for the lead character, Ellie Arroway. The very large array in New Mexico is the key to our chances for success. With its 27 linked radio telescopes, we can search more accurately than at any other conventional facility. Now all uh, we really need is the money. In the 1980s, Dr. Tata's work had caught the attention of the astronomer 
and author of the novel on which the film was based, Carl Sagan. Now, Carl Sagan is well known for many things. His keen interest in SETI is at the top of that list. Wouldn't it be lovely to make contact with another civilization that has arisen and evolved independently? Carl would be so delighted not only to know that planets are plentiful, but to see the diverse architectures in all of these exoplanet systems. Dr. Sagan is responsible for some of the key experiments that established the modern science of astrobiology, looking for life in space. In 1990, he turned the instruments of the Galileo spacecraft to look at Earth. He wanted to know whether it was possible to detect evidence of life on a planet from space. He found clear evidence in things like the spectrum of light reflected off the planet's surface. But the most obvious sign of intelligent life were the radio signals from television and radio broadcasts that had been streaming from the planet. From this distant vantage point, the Earth might not seem of any particular interest. But for us, it's different. Consider again that dot. That's here. That's home. Sagan boosted the profile of SETI and inspired a generation of people to look up at the skies and wonder. From the beginning, when we asked this question about extraterrestrial intelligence, using technology as a proxy for intelligence, we were pretty far out, right? That was pretty fringy. Now, it's more almost mainstream. It's exciting to be part of something that looks like it will have a vibrant future. It's always been a bit dicey training my replacements, right, through the years. But now, younger people are getting into the field. There's some funding that entices them. And I think that just so many opportunities. Our understanding of the universe has grown enormously since Sagan died in 1996. One of the most significant things we now know is that there are thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of exoplanets capable of supporting life. With so many potential habitats and more being discovered every week, the prospects for finding alien life have brightened. One of the most exciting leads for astronomers is the TRAPPIST system. TRAPPIST system is spectacular. A little faint M star and seven Earth-sized planets orbiting around it. If you put them into our solar system, all those orbits would be inside the orbit of Mercury. So it's very compact. It's nearby. It's only 40 light years away. We like to think with all of these planets in your sky, if one of these planets has life that develops technology and those technologists are looking up at all these planets and they're very close by and they're thinking, it's getting a bit crowded here. Why don't we just go to the next planet out and change it so that it's more like what we like, right? According to Jill, highly intelligent aliens could bioengineer their planets and we could spot signs of that engineering. When we finally get the opportunity to look, to make an image of that system, each of those planets at different distances from their star should have different temperatures. But what if when we look, we find that all or many of the planets are exactly the same? More habitable space for whoever started the technology. Technosignatures are fundamentally some detectable evidence of technologies. My name is Andrew Simeon. I'm the director of the Berkeley SETI Research Center, and I'm the principal investigator for a project called the Breakthrough Listen Initiative. 
The Breakthrough Listen project began in 2015. It's the largest ever scientific research program aimed at finding evidence of civilizations beyond Earth. One of the ways it does that is by looking for signs of technological advancement that an alien civilization might have left somewhere out in the universe. By far the most common type of technosignature and the easiest one to detect is electromagnetic radiation from technology. For the last hundred years or so, we've produced technology of all kinds that would be detectable at interstellar distances if there was a, a suitable telescope on the other end. And all of our technology has a, a very fundamental property that distinguishes it from natural sources of electromagnetic emission, and we call that coherence. Most of the time, natural sources of electromagnetic radiation have at their core uh, stochastic or, or random processes, random motions of electrons or atoms or molecules. And those things tend to smear out the electromagnetic energy in this phase space. So we look for this coherence in the radio part of the spectrum. We look for what we call narrow band radio emission, a lot of energy at just one radio frequency. And of course, many people will know that as a radio station or a TV station. It's exactly what it is. So while we use very different looking telescopes, fundamentally, the thing that we're looking for is the same. It's this property of coherence that distinguishes the artificial from the natural. Radio waves are what we traditionally think of as a techno-signature. It's what Ellie Arroway is searching for in contact, and indeed what SETI scientists have been listening for since the 1960s. But are there other clues for advanced life out there too? Certainly one of the most interesting is what we call technosignatures in transit. So this is where we watch a star very closely and we look to see if we could see some artificial structure occlude the star. We obviously have many, many artificial objects in our own solar system. Most of them are fairly small. Satellites are fairly small. Even the space station, which is relatively large for a spacecraft, is itself pretty small. And it would be very, very difficult for us to see something of that size if it were in orbit around another star. But perhaps some advanced civilizations build very, very large spacecraft. And if we look at those stars very, very carefully with photometry that's good to a part in 10 million or maybe a part in 100 million, which we might get to in the next couple of decades. Maybe we might see some very brief shadowing of the star by some giant artificial structure, a Death Star. The Breakthrough Listen Project is an example of one of the reasons why SETI is on the rise again. Money. The field has had a major influx of money in recent years. Breakthrough is funded by Yuri Milner, a software billionaire with a background in physics. He and others have reversed a trend that had nearly crippled SETI in the decades before. There was an issue in the US in the 90s, which was that a lot of SETI research was being funded by NASA. In the mid-1990s, the US Congress decided they didn't like SETI. Not only didn't like it, they aggressively defunded it. My name is Dr. Tony Beasley. I'm the director of the US National Radio Astronomy Observatory. Private money is also giving SETI astronomers time on some major government-funded telescopes. The National Radio Astronomy Observatory runs some of the most powerful radio telescopes in the world. Well, NRAO has always been part of the SETI story. In fact, the first SETI experiment was run at the National Observatory, you know, almost 60 years ago. In general, we don't do a lot of SETI research. If we provide time on one of our telescopes to a researcher that's looking at a galaxy or a star or a cloud of gas or something or other, there's an important scientific result to be had there, but the probability is also pretty good that they're going to you know, make a detection. 
SETI is different in the sense that the probability might be very, very low, right? But the significance is infinite. You know, the, it's one of the most significant discoveries that would ever take place. And so while we have over the years done SETI observing, in general, uh, you know, we don't do a lot of pointed time, like we don't allocate the telescope to a SETI telescope. In the last few years, there have been changes to that. The Breakthrough Listen program is a great example where they actually buy time on the telescope and they do pointed observations, you know, the nearest million stars and the nearest hundred galaxies and so on. That's a change. There's now enough philanthropic interest that people are prepared to actually do pointed observations that way. Another reason SETI astronomers are optimistic is that as good as the current crop of instruments is, the next generation of telescopes will transform the search. When we look at the telescopes which are being planned for the next decade or two, here in the US there's the next generation very large array. Internationally there's the square kilometre array. You're talking about collecting areas, you know, a sort of number of antennas and so on, which are, you know, perhaps an order of magnitude more capable than the existing telescopes. If you then think about the volume of the universe that you can search, the volume of the galaxy you can search, you're talking about increases of factors of 100 or 1,000. Coming up, if ET is already out there, why hasn't humanity been contacted yet? On the intelligent life side, you can't define a priori the probability of success. You can't even define, you know, the basis for a probability. And if scientists find intelligent life, what will it look like? The first advanced life that we encounter may, may not be biological life. It may be much more akin to what we would consider to be artificially intelligent life, silicon-based life. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation... Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. When you think of cutting-edge research... Screensavers on computers probably don't come to mind. But cast your mind back to 1999. Napster had just been released, the Spice Girls were breaking up, and The X-Files was a hit on TV. The main strategy for researchers at SETI was to comb through vast amounts of data collected by their radio telescopes to look for signals from ET. That search required a lot of computing power, which at the time wasn't cheap. But that all changed with an idea conceived at a cocktail party. The PC boom of the 1990s meant that many people had reasonably powerful computers sitting around at home. And most of the time they were not doing very much computing. What if SETI scientists could somehow use that spare computing capacity to crunch through their mountains of data? SETI at home was born. Anyone with at least 64 megabytes of RAM on their machine could download a screensaver that would play a very small part in analysing the data SETI had collected. The team behind it thought that maybe a few thousand people would download the programme. When the project finally ended earlier this year, more than 5 million people had helped. 
we consider just the radio search for extraterrestrial intelligence, it turns out that the amount of the radio spectrum that we can search instantaneously is almost directly hinged on the speed of our computers. So as our computers get twice as fast, we can search twice as much of the electromagnetic spectrum. As we all know, just from the devices that we carry in our pockets, computers have gotten tremendously more powerful. And we're now at the point where we can essentially process and search the entire signal that a modern radio telescope generates. And this is the first time in history that that's been possible. So that means that we can search more of the electromagnetic spectrum than we ever have. And we don't really know where to expect a signal. And so being able to search a lot of spectrum is very, very powerful. The other thing that we have is access to tools like machine learning and artificial intelligence, which allows us to look for a much wider variety of signals than we've ever been able to look for in the past. We started looking for radio signals. Jill Tata. And back then, we had very slow computers, and we had to, in fact, build our own Fourier transform chips, right? our own chips that did a particular mathematical operation that takes a stream of data in time and transforms it into a spectrum across frequency. You know, we inched up from 128 channels to uh, 64,000 channels to a couple of million, and now we can do billions of channels. So that has changed enormously. We're now beginning to open the door to the transient universe. We've never been able to do that in the past. We've required that signals stick around for a long time so that we could get around to confirming them. But now we are thinking about ways to be able to detect a signal that lasts maybe a nanosecond, a second, a minute, and have confidence when we find something that it's really what we think it is. That's exciting. This is a whole new phase space, right? We haven't looked at transients before. Maybe that is why we've not been successful. So I'm, I'm excited about that opening another door. Faster, cheaper computers have supercharged the search for ET. SETI at home is now no longer needed, but its legacy continues. One of the many successes of the project was to prove that a huge chunk of the general public care deeply about finding intelligent life. Now this can cause its own problems. False positives are a huge problem for everybody interested in life. But in looking for technological life, we have another problem. Not just false positives, but deliberate hoaxes. Fortunately for the scientific community, Jill says it's pretty easy for them to spot a fake when they see one. We can nail a hoax really at the beginning. But the problem of false positives is more tricky. They raise not just verification issues, but philosophical ones. Just because you discover intelligent life doesn't mean people will believe you. When radio pulsars were discovered by Jocelyn Bell as a graduate student at Cambridge, they were initially dubbed LGM-001 and LGM-002. That's Little Green Man. If you ask Jocelyn Bell Burnell about that, she'll tell you that that was somewhat tongue-in-cheek. But nevertheless, pulsars do in many ways mimic the kinds of electromagnetic emission that we see from technology. So we have to be very, very careful. Undoubtedly, if we were to detect a one hertz wide radio transmission, even though today I would tell you that we know of absolutely no way that natural physics could give rise to such a signal, certainly many, many astrophysical theorists would come up with some way that perhaps nature could do that, and nature surprises us. So if we do detect such a thing, I think it will still require substantial study to actually rule out the possibility that it is indeed a natural source rather than an artificial one.
Doubt has long been built into the science of searching for ET. Yes, humans haven't yet found intelligent life, but why hasn't it found us? So you can answer the where are they question many different ways. That's Chris Impey. I'm a professor of astronomy at the University of Arizona in Tucson. He's talking about one of the most enduring questions in the field, the Fermi paradox. I've been scolded by philosophers who often critique scientists and their logic that it's not formally a paradox. Now, whether it's actually a paradox or not doesn't really matter for our discussion. The Italian-born physicist Enrico Fermi's legacy, besides his work on the Manhattan Project, is an unsolved puzzle. Fermi, this is very prescient, in 1950, you know, really before the space age and really before modern astrobiology, he was aware that the ingredients for life were likely to be widespread in the universe, and he was aware that a modest extrapolation of current technology would take us off Earth and let us look for it, and that we were unlikely to be the most advanced species in the galaxy. And so he just followed that logic and said, well, if they're out there and there's a lot of them, where are they? Why haven't they visited? Why haven't they made themselves known? And it's what they call a well-posed question, was then and still is. There are scores of potential answers to Fermi's puzzle. Aliens could be seeing us as so primitive that why would they bother contacting us? Could aliens be protecting us from knowing about their existence? An uncontacted tribe in the rainforest of space? Aliens could even already be here and we just haven't figured it out yet. My preferred answer is probably just that they are out there, but they're very rare, that it is a fairly unlikely happenstance from evolution and biology. And space is big, and so if the distances in time and space between us and other civilizations is large, it would be easy for us to not know they exist or to be able to communicate in any practical sense. So just the scarcity of it would lead you to answer the question. Chris Impey believes that we'll find some kind of life beyond our planet in the next 10 to 15 years. But it might not be the intelligent kind. The leaders of the SETI world are more optimistic. So at the start of the Breakthrough Listen initiative, everybody that was at the table at dinner was asked, what do you think the odds are that the project will succeed? We were forced at the time to actually give a number. And my number was one part in a thousand, so 0.1%. We're, we're five years into it. We have five years left to go. We haven't yet made a detection, so we'll see whether or not those odds actually hold out throughout the program. But uh, what I can say is that whatever the odds were in 2010 or 2011, I think it, it, undoubtedly the odds are a thousand times higher today for all of the reasons that we've talked about. Faster computers, bigger telescopes, more telescopes, and more people. I, I absolutely think that ET is out there. I don't think I would be able to get up every morning and come into work if I wasn't an optimist. Given the pace of technology and given our investment and interest in astronomy and so on, it's certainly going to be the case that within the next decade, and maybe certainly within the next few decades, we will be setting really very good limits on the existence of simple life through biosignatures and so on. Within a decade or two, probably we'd be able to find good examples of ourselves certainly nearby in the galaxy and maybe throughout the galaxy to some extent. So that's, that's a pretty good measure. Deep down, do you believe there is intelligent life out there? Wrong verb. Wrong verb. We're not talking about belief. For millennia, we asked the priests and the philosophers, anybody, thought we, anybody else we thought was smart, what we should believe about life beyond Earth. And they gave us an answer based in whatever their belief system was. 
that's not science. That's religion, right? So my whole career has been about changing the verb to believe to the verb to explore. Let's actually go out and find out what's out there. So far, the skies have been quiet. But SETI researchers are patient people. They live in hope. As the technology and the science improves, no one knows for sure what they'll find. And even if it comes to nothing, the search for life beyond our planet is an important journey. In the words of the great Carl Sagan, the Earth is the only world known so far to harbour life. There's nowhere else, at least in the near future, to which our species could migrate. Visit, yes. Settle. Not yet. Like it or not, for the moment, the Earth is where we make our stand. It has been said that astronomy is a humbling and character-building experience. There is perhaps no better demonstration of the folly of human conceits than this distant image of our tiny world. To me, it underscores our responsibility to deal more kindly with one another and to preserve and cherish the pale blue dot, the only home we've ever known. That's all for this edition of Babbage. While you're with us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And for analysis of science and technology in the world around us, please subscribe at economist.com slash radio offer. I'm Alok Jha, and on planet Earth, this is The Economist. This is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.